0: Hello and welcome to the political party. What an absolute treat you are in for. This is a rare gem indeed. Peter Mandelson, someone who was critical to the success of New Labour and was involved in that project in a long way and perhaps in a way that even Tony Blair and Gordon Brown weren't because mandelson was there working for kinnock as his head of communications changing the labor party logos then deeply involved in the blair years and then comes back in the brown years and has that broad perspective and 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 in a way that no one else does and what really comes through on this is the temperament and the character that peter has that made him so uniquely placed to be not just a, a top level politician but his political judgment his his ability to be so calm in a crisis is so rare not just in this country but just in politics globally he has really a unique personality that allows him to give the best possible advice in the middle of a a crisis or any sort of political scenario so and that really comes through in his his advice for the Labour Party now uh, pulls through but that fascinating relationship particularly between him and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and, and the pros and cons to having the reputation that he had, and we talk about this, the monikers that he's given, Machiavelli, the Prince of Darkness, although they may have looked very glamorous to people like me, as, as a fan of New Labour, and watching that all unfold, and perhaps the rest of the country the, the, the idea that he was almost bestowed with magical powers also came at a price not just a political price but arguably a personal one as well so there is so, I mean this is just absolutely jam-packed I began by asking Peter given the time of year um, that we're in whether he was a Christmas kind of a guy and whether he'd sent all his Christmas cards out yet
1: I love Christmas. I love organising, you know me. Eye for detail, that's how new labour was created. So there's nothing I like more than
0: organising everything. And have you had many Christmas cards yet? Have you, have you had your, your card from Tony and one from Gordon?
1: Actually, I'm a bit disappointed. I, I, I haven't actually had very many Christmas cards. And I'm now wondering whether, with COVID and everything, everyone's sending fewer cards Whereas I'm sending out lots. I mean, I'm worried that I'm going to be the only person sort of sending out cards this year.
0: But it's better to what? be the person sending them than be the only person who isn't sending them.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. Perhaps, they, perhaps they're in the post.
0: Yeah, because people get them and go, oh, I should have done that. It's, it's like it's like being the best dressed person in the room. If in doubt, always wear a suit and then at least you're not the, the worst dressed person in the room.
1: You can always take your tie off if you're overdressed.
0: Exactly, but you can't just nip and get a suit once you're in T-shirt and shorts.
1: Well spotted. So,
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that you're... I, I guessed that you would be a
1: Christmas kind of guy. Do you have a big tree? I have a big tree, yeah. Lights, baubles and everything. Uh, they're a bit of a danger. The dogs are a bit of a danger. There's Jock in particular likes to sort of sniff around and snap off the baubles, wouldn't <laughs> He loves balls of any kind, shape, form or consistency. Whenever he goes out, he will find somebody's ball <coughs> to, come to bring back into the house. They're usually disgusting things. And so these round, these spherical objects on the tree just tantalise him.
0: And do you, do you have any political baubles? Do you have old, you know, Labour ones from times gone by?
1: I'm afraid not, no. No, I mean a few red flags, probably, you know, sort of from from the nineteen eighties, before <laughs> before we hauled down the red flag and put out the red rose. Well, that I'm was. I a- am ro- a red rose man, Matt. In case you hadn't noticed.
0: Well, of course, yes. I mean that is seen as when people think about your legacy, I guess that on family fortunes, that would be the top answer. You know, what did, Labor, what did Peter Madison do for the Labour Party? And people would say the Labour rose. Um,
1: is that it? Is that it?
0: <laughs> well, no, that would be the top. There'd be other answers as well. We'll, we'll talk about what those other answers might be. But the Labour rose would be, would be top of the, uh, of the list, wouldn't it? I, I mean, that's quite a cool legacy to have, don't you think?
1: It is. It was very, very, very symbolic, very significant at the time. You know know how we did the Red Rose, do do you? No. The National Executive Committee, I didn't think we're ever going to agree the replacement of the red flag by the Red Rose. Neil was very keen on it. He wanted this Red Rose, and Judy sent me off to find a nice Red Rose, which I did. Um, But I was very worried about the National Executive Committee. This is in the middle of the 1980s, obviously. And so... I brought into a meeting of the Press and Publicity Subcommittee of the National Executive Committee a sort of piece of cardboard with this rose attached to it. And I said to them, oh, this is just a sort of interesting logo that I'm that, that we're trying out for a campaign. I didn't tell them that it was going to sort of adorn the entire party yeah. henceforward. And they passed around this piece of card, literally from one person to another around the table at Woolworth Road. And they all sort of hummed and hard and nodded and said, well, oh, that's a nice rose. Uh, and the chair, uh, who was Gwyneth Dunwoody, said, right, everyone, everyone like Peter's new logo? Oh, yes, we like Peter's new logo. Um, that was in July 1986. By the time they got to the party conference at the end of September in Blackpool, I'd had the entire winter gardens uh, adorned with this amazing pistachio colored backdrop. And on it was this huge red rose with the word labor putting people first. And it was dramatic, shocking. Uh, The red flag was never to be seen again. And by the way, nobody really noticed or cared. Uh, they love the red rose. A, a last-minute hitch was that Glenys Kinnock um, uh, said to me, she said, Peter, she said, this um, this campaign wallet thing, this cardboard wallet that you've produced for the party conference, that everyone can put their you know their resolution books and all their other paraphernalia in, she said, it's salmon pink with a red rose. Do you really think the delegates of the national union of mine workers they're going to be walking around the winter gardens at the party conference holding a pink colored cardboard wallet like some handbag <laughs> with your red rose on she said you're going to have to change it you'll have to you you, you, you just can't do this and i said oh, i'm terribly sorry i think it may be a bit late I'll, I'll check though of course i knew they'd all been printed two weeks later you could not Find them for love nor money. People were paying for them, stealing them, taking them off other people's chairs, beg, borrowing, stealing these lovely salmon, pink-colored wallets with the red, with the red rose on, with Labour putting people first, including, I might say, the National Union of Modern Workers' <laughs> delegates. Everyone loved it. And it made everyone feel confident and secure. And that at last, we were beating the Tories at their own game.
0: The red flag had connotations, not just in a British context, see there's as a kind of Russian revolution symbol, really, of communism, yes, yes. let alone socialism.
1: No, it was fantastic in the mid-1980s to be fighting Mrs Thatcher you know, under the flag of the Soviet Union and the Russian Communist Party. I mean, it was, no, it was ideal, don't worry. I mean, <laughs> it was as to who was going to win. You know, we thought we might, you know, just about... But, no, she got there before us. But, I mean, of course it was crazy. It was like something out of the Cold War. But the Labour Party learned slowly sometimes, I'm afraid.
0: Well, yes, we're we're kind of experiencing that at the moment. Replacing the red flag with the rose then. Why the rose? I mean, I I see that a lot of other left-wing and social democratic parties in Europe use the rose now, but was the Labour Party in the UK
1: the first? No, we weren't the first. No, 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 we followed. We didn't lead. Um, The Scandinavians... We're using the red rose um, uh, rather successfully. I think one or two others. And it was nice. I mean, what would you rather have? A nice, sweet smelling, you know, red rose imbued with warmth and humanity or a Soviet style red flag, and, you know?
0: <laughs> well, I'd rather have the rose for the record. But when when you're designing these things, people might say, "Well, what sort of rose do we have?" Do you? It had a really long stem, and obviously the logo has gone through a genesis th- since, where it's kind of in a
1: window oh, don't, now. Don't, don't talk to me with a long stem. You know, you know that was what Neil and I fell out over. No, is that why you're asking me that? No, like, not at all. No, I would never have known. I, no, no, no. I <laughs> took the red rose to him. The look. It, it, it started with this wonderful guy, Michael Wolf uh, who was a designer. Uh, I mean, a really brilliant top of the range designer, labor supporter. And then he took the, um, the task to, a, to a, an artist. I mean, literally an artist, quite a famous artist at the time. And he said, this is what they want. This is how I see it. Your client is this guy, Mandelson, you've got to make him happy. Please paint some red roses and uh, we'll see, we'll take it from there. And about two months later, Michael phoned me and said, will you come down somewhere into the depths of South London, I can't remember where, um, because he's done you some red roses. I went into this studio and hung up with clothes pegs on a washing line. Round all four walls of this large studio were scores and scores and scores of red roses, all painted slightly differently all with a sort of slightly different sort of presentation or, or whatever. And I looked around and I thought, God, where am I gonna start? Anyway, um, I think, who is it I had with me? I can't remember, I think it was Patricia Hewitt Uh, who worked for Neil as his press secretary and the wonderful, wonderful Philip Gould, uh, who uh, was a great sort of strategist, pollster uh, for the whole of the new Labour uh, period. And the three of us with Michael went round just taking, making our own selection. And eventually we boiled it down to a short list, I think of about a dozen. Um, And we took them back to the office and we road tested them on some others and we got the shortlist down to about six and eventually with a little bit of you know manipulation of this and a bit of lengthening of that and a bit more leaf here and a bit less stem there uh, we got to a final version which i presented to neil kinnock and he said i don't like the stem why not what's wrong with the stem neil I mean, look at the rose, it's a beautiful rose, and he said, no, the stem's too long, the stem's too long. <laughs> and uh, I said, don't worry, I'll deal with it. And I did, as I always did. And we reduced the stem, at which point he was extremely happy. He loved that rose. And good, but absolutely right too. And at the end of the party conference- I oh, guess I remember um, him throwing remember bunches of them into the crowd. You remember my, uh, I had a lovely broadcasting officer um, at the time in the press office who, who subsequently died in a terrible rail crash, uh, Tony, Tony Beaton. And Tony had had a baby recently and he and his wife had had to bring the baby down to the party conference to look after it. And as we were going up onto the uh, platform uh, for the final on the final day of the party conference, um, I'd got a huge box of red roses and to take up onto the stage for Neil and Glenys to throw out to all the delegates. Who all I mean, they were they were loving it. They were lapping up. They just couldn't get enough of these roses. I mean, we never never have been. Roses being harvested in such numbers for, for <laughs> socialism as they were then, and in the subsequent general election, and I saw Tony standing there with his uh, Tony Bean standing there with his baby. I said, Tony, excuse me, I just got to borrow your baby for a moment. Took the baby, took the up onto the platform, and uh, we had a nice sort of baby moment as well with the red roses with Neil and Glenys. You can imagine the pictures. Everyone was ecstatic. And then we went on from that moment in 1986 to fight the 1987 general election, which uh, which you will remember how Private Eye described. Do you remember? Uh, well, you have to remind me. The brilliant Red Rose election they described in Private Eye as Peter Mandelson's brilliant election defeat. <laughs> because it was a fantastic campaign, not just with the Red Roses, but if you remember too, we had uh, Neil Kinnock's incredible speeches. Do you remember? Amazing speeches. I mean, he probably galvanized as many votes as were available for us to harvest during that election. Mm -hmm. Tragically, not nearly enough to win. Uh, But that plus uh, the Hugh Hudson movie. Do you remember Kinnock? the movie, the best party political election broadcast ever being made?
0: Yes, of course. Very famous.
1: Very famous. It was so successful. Neil, Neil's personal rating shot up, I think, somewhere between 16 and 20% overnight. So much so that I decided to show the broadcast again during the same election campaign. So those who'd missed it the first time, uh, or indeed had so enjoyed it the first time, had an <laughs> opportunity to see it a week later.
0: <laughs> and when you say that you and Neil fell out over the rose, I, I, I mean, were you joking? I, I know that things become tense between people during campaigns, but was that a serious row?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> Get a grip, Matt. Well, I um, don't know. You, you're very convincing when you said it. There were other things that were more tense than the length of the rose stem. Serious, serious as that was at the time. Uh, there were there there were other moments. Defence policy and unilateralism was a source of particular tension as Neil navigated his way, sort of picked his way across the Labour Party minefield mm-hmm. of, of of nuclear policy and unilateralism. And he was forever saying to me, "You've gone too far this time, kid. You know, you 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 you've you've gone too far." Because he would. You know, he would come in and he would get the morning papers and he would suddenly see that he was going to do something really dramatic and radical that day, usually because I'd briefed it the night before, uh, to the paper and they had sort of flabbed it up and put it on the front page. And Neil would say, oh God, I can't do this. You know, you, you, you're taking this too far, you know. It's going to rebound, it's going to, we're going to be, it's going to boomerang on us. I said, don't worry, it'd be okay. And it always was okay um but uh look it was a nervy time uh, in the Labour Party uh in 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 the 1980s you know I mean it was uh I mean you can only under really you can only understand the heights of new Labour and what we had to aspire to and reach by understanding the depths of the party in the 1980s and you know I joke about Labour's brilliant election defeat but you know 1987 we were not in a battle for election victory we we're in a battle for survival man mm. I mean it, we, we were faced from attacks literally on all sides I mean we had no friends in the media apart obviously from the mirror uh, but we were facing attacks from within the party and without it I mean from the right we had Thatcher from the center. We had the um, STP, the newly formed STP under the Gang of Four. And we were also being uh, attacked from the left, the Benite left, which, uh, you know, which in my view was responsible for the depth the party reached in the early and mid 1980s, just as its more recent Corbynite incarnation uh, has done to us decades uh, later. Um, but this was these were these were really really difficult uh, times um, uh, in uh, in the nineteen eighties. I mean, we were under daily sustained attack in the media. Uh, a lot of it just thoroughly malign, but a lot rest of it was self inflicted. You know, from within the party, we were completely out of step with the mainstream of. British public opinion in almost every conceivable way, in in policy positions, uh, basically across the waterfront, we were seen as extreme. Um, I mean, a defence posture that, that was basically viscerally anti-American. This was eighty-three. This is yeah. pre because Neil had to deal with all this. God help him. But it was viscerally anti-American. It was anti-NATO, it was basically anti-West and that fueled a deep mistrust in the party as far as security and defence were concerned. And Indeed, our our patriotism, actually, an economic programme that placed us on the wrong side of people's aspirations and, and what they thought was affordable. I mean, all of which fueled a deep distrust among the British people that would take years and years to banish. Remember, you know, we, we didn't win an election you know, for well over, we were out of power for 18 years, you know, from 1979 uh, to 1997. And it, it was because of what we did to ourselves in the 1980s, which basically trashed the party's brand, our image, our standing in the country, uh, uh, trust in us just crumbled. I mean, we were barely a recognisable political party by the time that Kinnock uh, came in when he was elected in the mid-1980s. And what do you know? We did it to ourselves all over again over the last four or five years. And basically the position we were in then in the 1980s is the position, not dissimilar position, actually in some respects, worse, that uh, Keir Starmer has inherited uh, post-Corbyn this year.
0: The dynamic between you and Neil Kinnock is fascinating because he was the left candidate when he becomes the the Labour leader and then he gradually modernises the party and he himself almost warms up to the idea that Labour has to be far more modern in order to win. You'd taken that journey a lot quicker. You'd been a, a young radical and then I mean, really, now that there's only you and Tony Blair that are seen as the truly new Labour in many people's eyes. Just on your own political journey then, I mean, you were in the Young Communists for I don't know how long. Um, what was it that made you shed your radical roots?
1: I was in the Labour Party, the, Communist, the Young Communists League, mainly for social reasons, actually. Uh, but I was there for, I think, about six, uh, six months. Um, look, I, 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 <laughs> I was... Uh, and have remained and will always be Labour. I mean, I I was born into it. Uh, Tony said once that he chose the Labour Party. uh, Well, the Labour Party chose me. Um, I was well and truly born into it. My grandfather was a Labour uh, politician. My parents were completely uh, Labour. And and from the earliest days of my life, the Labour Party has been woven into it because, you know, because of because my family, because I was born into that church, that tribe, and I mean, I'm um, as you know, famously not a football man, except I do still treasure my scarf from my Hartlepool United scarf. But you know, the fact is, the Labour Party has always been my team. And I support my team like others support a football team. Mm. I mean, really, in good times uh, and bad. And just as with any football team, so too I am with the Labour Party. I criticise it, I cajole it, um, I kick it around. And, but it's all through a desperation to see it win.
0: But do you always it, vote for it?
1: Yes, of course I always vote for it. Even with Corbyn? Well, let you into a small secret: members of the House of Lords can't vote in general elections. So of I was course. there, the pleasure and the privilege of voting for Jeremy Corbyn. Do you obviously- miss that pleasure? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, oh,
0: I would. I would miss voting. I get such a buzz from it. I, I thought you oh, might. Well, I thought, do, I, do I miss
1: not being able to vote for Jeremy Corbyn? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't vote at all. Look. I mean, <laughs> my, my passion, my life's work is, um, is, is getting Labour to, in a position when it can win. So you can imagine what I felt like, you know, under Jeremy Corbyn. But you asked me where I sort of came into this story in the 80s. And, and Neil Kinnock knew what he was getting, by the way, when, when he and Roy Hattersley and others appointed me Director of Campaigns and Communications. By the the entire National Executive Committee had to meet to agree to do this. They interviewed seven candidates uh, for, this, for this role. Um, it took a long time <laughs> for them to go through all those seven candidates. Every member of the NEC was able to ask a question, obviously not all of them did. Uh, and eventually, I think I was selected by 13 votes to 11 with three abstentions. Ooh. Quite close. It it was a close-run thing, but I had the support of both uh, Kinnock and uh, and Hattersley. but they knew what I was about. Um, I mean, I've always been driven uh, by a desire to see the Labour Party to be the modern, progressive, um, dynamic, aspirational reforming party that it absolutely needs to be, if it's both going to win an election and govern sustainably. And That is something, Matt, I remind you, it has only ever got close to being in those new Labour years. I mean, three successive terms of a Labour government uh, under new Labour, we have never got close to achieving that during our party's history. i just just slip that in and remind you of it. But, you know, that's what I believed in. That's what I stood for in the 1980s. Uh, I, I never made any secret of it. Everyone knew what they were getting if they uh, uh, chose me. Um, I, I've never been a, a new party man. Um, I know that some, you know, during the last four or five years under Corbyn uh, felt that there was no alternative but to go and form a new uh, parties. I mean, we were like two completely different parties in the, in the same single structure. Uh, I accept that. And I also accept that one of them had to leave. But I didn't feel that it was our party and people, you know, who thought like us and who wanted the Labour Party to be a mainstream national popular party. I never accepted for one moment that it was we who should be the ones to leave and hand it over on a plate to to, to Corbyn uh, and Co. Uh, but That's why I believe equally and passionately that we've got to fix the existing party, Um, not sort of dump it, go off and leave it or shun it. And I want to play my uh, part in that. I I actually want to do more than simply cheer on my team from the sidelines. Uh, I I feel it so passionately, partly because I love the Labour Party and partly because I see what we've got now uh, with the Tories. I mean, they're not even conservatives, they're vandals. given what they're doing to the country we need a Labour government and that's what I want to work for
0: so you say you want to do more than 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 cheer on the sidelines are are we looking at another Mandelson comeback
1: (laughs) I think probably three is enough but um (laughs) well I mean honestly I'll do whatever I'm asked to do I'll do whatever I'm asked to do and have you been asked to do anything no I haven't actually (laughs) Uh, I'm waiting I'm waiting by the phone um I'm always hopeful whenever it rings. <laughs> um, but I mean, what, what I think people don't quite understand now is what you have to go through and do and how intensively you have to work mm. in order to rebuild a political party. And that's what we had to do uh, under Kinnock. He saved the Labour Party, no question about it. He saved the Labour Party. I mean, Tony Blair then turbocharged it in the 1990s, but Neil Kinnock saved it in the 1980s. No, no, no shadow of doubt about that. But we worked so intensively. I mean, 24/7, we worked. You know, the team who were working uh, under Kinnock in the 80s and then under Blair in the 1990s, and of course that's where the alliance between me and Tony and Gordon uh, was forged. I mean, first in the 1980s, when they were uh, new MPs, they came in in the 83 election and they worked their way onto the front bench and into the shadow cabinet. And I was the campaign and communications director. And uh, what all of us did then, and through that alliance amongst other relationships we had, uh, as uh, as I said, we had to sort of turbocharge in the 1990s in order to get to the victory that we pulled off in 1997.
0: The dynamic between the three of you is, is so fascinating and obviously it changed over time. But do you ever reminisce about those early days? Do you remember them like school days almost where the sun shone every day and the three of you were kind of carefree and larking about? Or is or it not like that in retrospect?
1: Um it, it, it was a brilliant, it was, they were brilliant relationships, man, between the three of us. I mean, they were obviously the defining political relationships of my life. Mm. Um, and for all the ups and downs, their relationships I've never regretted. I mean, they are two brilliant political people. I mean, I was the third man. I was never equal uh, to the other two. Um, but but in, what, were, in what way do you mean were, you were not equal? They were the absolutely critical figures in forging a Labour Party that certainly represented my deepest hopes, and which, uh, which I could see that when we were really throwing ourselves into it, w- w- I, I knew we were going to be successful. I never lost confidence. I never lost my optimism. Uh, and, but it was because of the intensity of what we were doing. Actually, I suppose, I mean, I know what you're going to ask, where did it all go wrong with us? But <laughs> the truth is that the depth and the intensity of our alliance and our friendship in the early years, uh, which began in the, uh, in the 80s, it was driven by our sort of collective burning desire to modernize labor and make it electable again, it, it did find its darker mirror image. I'm afraid in the depth and the intensity, intensity of the subsequent rupture, and that, as you know, happened when John Smith uh, tragically and unexpectedly uh, died in 1994, and which none of us were expecting. And suddenly, a leadership election uh, 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 opened up, <clears throat> and that's when the that's when the rupture. Uh, or schism, or whatever you want to call it, uh, occurred. I mean, I, I have sort of kept up with Tony more than I've kept up with uh, Gordon, although I don't see Tony so much now because he's busy and going around the place. But I mean, the, for me and Gordon, I mean, since we met, it was, I suppose, it's it's always, always, it's always sort of been either um the closest of bonds and really close yeah or the fiercest of separations i mean we have never neither of us have ever been able to find a third way i'm afraid (laughs) uh, between between those uh, uh extremes but um you know all of us forge new labor um Perhaps we represented different positions mm. on the New Labour spectrum. Um, I think probably Gordon was more on the Labour end of the spectrum, Tony more on the New end of the spectrum. I was somewhere uh, in between, um, uh, between them. But the leadership election, obviously, ninety four was was a terrible rupture. It was. Uh, It was something from which... Well, it was a fracture, I think, more than a rupture. I don't know what it was. Anyway, um, it's never been completely repaired, and it was a fracture that was agonising to me then, and actually, in one way or another, it's remained upsetting to me ever since, actually. And have you talked to Gordon face-to-face about it since...? No, 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 we, we, do, we talked about it on and off <laughs> over the years. Um, look, I, I was torn between them emotionally and politically. I mean, just to remember what, what, what it was like in the 90s, we were literally on the cusp of realizing that sort of modernizing dream, that vision that the three of us shared. Um, I mean, whatever Gordon thought then, and for all I know, may think now, I didn't actually choose between them. I know people in books and newspaper articles still write, you know, Peter went with Tony and made him leader and Gordon was spurned, et cetera. It really was not like that. Um, you know, I refused to choose between them. And instead, actually, I offered support and advice to them both in very, very difficult circumstances. Actually, in the first few days, after John's uh, death, I did much more for, gave much more advice to Gordon than I did to Tony. Um, But very quickly, the party chose, the parliamentary party chose, the trade unions chose, the public actually chose, I mean, through opinion polls, I mean, through indications of where their support lay. and I initially was trying to keep in the middle of the road between them and avoid the oncoming uh, uh, traffic, um, but then was flattened by a ten-ton truck, or a great clunking fist came down. Yeah. Uh, you know. Anyway, um, but it, it, after that, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it was very difficult for me after that because as i said i was the third man and i was in a sense defined by what i had been originally when they first met me as the communications director uh and i don't really feel that i ever properly escaped that especially in tony's eyes uh actually i mean i think it was a problem for me more widely i think that the party saw me and the media and the public to an extent saw me forever associated with the, you know, the the dark arts of political communications. And uh, in the 1990s, again, by courtesy of Private Eye, I became the Prince of Darkness. Um, Obviously, I've since now become the Dark Lord. (laughs) Um, What next? What next, indeed. But... Truthfully, it wasn't until Tony went in the end that I think I, that I, I finally escaped my role in the shadows. Um, that's what I, that's what I feel. It was, mind you, my great friend, my guy who's remained my best friend ever since, uh, Robert Harris, the author, Uh, he didn't help me in 1987 because he he wrote the first newspaper profile of me in the Observer newspaper and it was headlined Machiavelli comes to Walworth Road and I've never actually escaped the Machiavelli tag placed on me by, 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 by Robert since but I mean I felt it condemned me to a life in the shadows really in that role that I had with Gordon and Tony, I was always the consiliary. I was if you remember when um, when I was managing the media side of Tony's election, leadership election finally in 94 you know, I, I was known as Bobby you know, not even Peter I was had a pseudonym, Bobby then I became, when we went into government, I became the minister without portfolio and then, you know, the rest of all that happened that we know uh, occurred. And and then, then again, I was sort of plunged back into this non-public role advising Tony um, in, later on after my second resignation from the government and his deep period of trouble uh, after the Iraq invasion in, two, in 2003. Um, if you remember, we had the terrible uh, death of dr kelly david kelly and after that alistair stepped away and and left downing street and tony that that 2003 2004 was the really worst period of tony's premiership they they were the depths of despair and and i had to keep coming in on a sort of sometimes daily basis certainly weekly coming into number 10 by the back door or by the French windows as, as, as they were at that, behind Downing Street near where the horse cards is, um, you know, playing this sort of private role uh, uh, in order to support him. Um, and I suppose I did have an inner conflict. I mean, I I did actually want to be at the center of events. You know, and a large bit of me wanted to be there helping him and supporting him and coming into number 10 all the time. And, helping to manage events and his staff and plan and strategize away, but all the time unhappy at not having a real role. And I never really resolved that or in the sense, I suppose in the sense I did resolve it in favor of always going in, never saying no. If you wanted me to help, I would do so, even if it caused me a lot of unhappiness. And although I did have wonderful times, I mean, My happiest moments in government were certainly my three periods as a cabinet minister in my own right. But the rest of the time, you know, when I was in the shadows, I really hated. And, but eventually Gordon brought me back after I'd been to Brussels to be trade commissioner for four and a half years. And I felt I came back in a much better state, state of mind, people's sort of perceptions of me had changed I was no longer in the shadows I'd been doing a serious job in the rest of the world negotiating trade deals on behalf of the entirety of the European Union Uh, we were just sailing into the global financial crisis at the time in 2008 Uh, the government was not in a great place politically and I came back to you know, to support Gordon and to help the government and to help dig us out of um, the trough that we'd been plunged into. Um, and that I did sort of more in my own right. Um, and uh, actually, I enjoyed more that time working in government for Gordon, frankly, than I had done actually for Tony, Odd, odd as it is to say that now.
0: Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I guess it's a double-edged sword having the reputation that you still have for being a communications expert having almost a gift for political judgment do you think that was why Tony Blair was so keen to keep you in that role or do you think it was um in a way him preventing a, another flank of competition coming from a, another one of the trio
1: no I didn't think so I think he felt I had something Uh, that was fairly unique or it certainly was certainly very practiced was born of a great deal of experience um and he just wanted to keep using it in one form or another i mean he was always very kind to me about my performance and record as a cabinet minister didn't stop him firing me but i mean he was always (laughs) you can imagine how charming he was when he did it Oh, Peter, you've been absolutely fabulous. You know, you've been a real stalwart. I mean, what the changes you've made in that department, its and the policies, they were just superb. I I really don't think we could have done without you in that department, but unfortunately, you know, he's so delightful in the way he does it. But I don't know, what what sustained me during all my time in politics is actually not my familiarity with the dark arts. It wasn't my communications prowess or my campaign professionalism. I mean, I said to you I was born into the Labour Party and I was, but what kept me going throughout was the value system I had and the political beliefs I had and still retain. I I believe then, I believe now that freedom for people does not come from being self-made or self-sufficient, it comes from Creating a strong society, one which provides a platform on which everyone can stand, whoever they are, whatever their background, to make the most of themselves, have the chance to grow and and to develop and realise their potential. That is what, for me, social democracy is all about. A strong society that creates a really solid platform on which everyone can stand uh, and grow tall as tall as they want to fulfill as much potential uh, uh, as they have. And in the meantime, with a strong state that's there to secure them and protect their families from disease, that's why we had a, why, why we created the National Health Service in the first place, you know, to protect them from want, you know, that's why we have a social mm. system and a welfare system and to, and to protect them from ignorance. That's why we have brilliant schools and, FE colleges and and universities. That's what Labour is about. Um, It really is about the many, uh, not the few, not in the rhetorical momentum, crowd pleasing way, where they go on bleating on about the many, not the few. Um, But, you know, not by playing to the gallery, but through creating practical, credible policies and means that bring people genuine lasting life changes the sort for which you need the support of the majority of the country not just your partisan followers and that's always the creed i believed in it's the one that i've argued for in the labour party and will continue to do so hasn't by the way always made me that popular (laughs) Uh, i don't know whether you've noticed uh but um you know i I I know fully well, because I know the Labour Party inside out. I could have chosen the easier path. I could have sat on the fence. I could have looked both ways when the hard choices had to be made. I could have greased up to my colleagues in the tea room. I could have played to the activists uh, gallery. Um, But I, I thought then, and I still do, that the path to victory for the Labour Party lies through clarity. Not obfuscation. Well, uh, and people, when you're that clarity doesn't always make you popular uh, in a party. And I fully accept that I made mistakes or that I was occasionally a bit too cruel to be kind. Um, but it was always, ever, for only one reason. I was just in a hurry to return our party to where it should be in government. And uh, uh, to this day, I remain in that hurry. Uh, possibly more than ever, given what we're facing now.
0: I want to ask you about clarity, because your clarity of thought uh, is something that is so prized, so rare, and it's something that you seem to possess in in quite a unique way, to to be calm in a crisis, to give clear advice, to give the right advice when a crisis hits. But just, uh, and I don't want to go over the sad bits, but it must have been so hard for you to have been let go by Tony Blair twice. I mean, it, when he calls you in for those conversations, it, was the writing on the wall or in either scenario, did you think actually we could have a conversation here that could save my, my cabinet skin?
1: No, I don't think either on either occasion, but he was really on the wall. Um, I mean, look, the, the truth is that when he first let me go in December 1998, it had been preceded by a huge media squall about me being gay. Yes. That's the truth of it. I mean, Matthew Paris, who's a brilliant journalist, great guy, actually, I like him lots. But, I mean, you know, he sort of quotes outed me on Newsnight in, uh, when was it? The end of November, beginning of December, I can't remember, 1998. Yes. Well, i had been outed 10 years before that, Courtesy of our friends in the News of the World, who in the first week of the election campaign—that was eighty-seven, the first one that I managed—you um, uh, know—struck me with a thunderbolt. You know, with their front page on that first Sunday of the uh, of the uh, of, of the campaign. Um, I can't even remember what the what the. What, what, what was the headline? I can't even remember what the bloody headline was. Um, it was Labour's campaign chief in gay love shock. You know, pages one, three, and four. That was in nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah. man. And by that, before that, by the way, I, I had been I, I had been living as a completely open gay man with a with a partner who had had from the end of the 1970s, I think, 78, 79. Uh, I mean, it seems incredible now that just to be gay was a legitimate story and made you a legitimate target. But of course it was the Murdoch press doing Thatcher a favor. I mean, that intervention was designed to help Thatcher's election campaign. I was the target with that big front page uh, 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 story. Um, but I had decided long before you that, I mean, as a teenager, you know, I, I came to terms with my sexuality very easily and very uh, quickly. Mainly because I had this wonderful, warm, totally supportive embrace of my family, my parents, and mm. uh, and, and my brother. I mean, we never even discussed it. It was just understood. Mm. It, it was. I grew up in a completely couldn't care less, it doesn't matter, environment. It was as close to normality uh, as, you could, uh, as you could get. And that's what my uh, parents uh, gave me. And from, from my teenage years onwards, I maintained one absolutely cardinal rule, the one my parents had imbued, imbued in me, and that was no shame, no fear of being gay,
0: period. But when you find yourself on the front page in that manner and in that tone, when you feel as though the eyes of the world are, are on you and and, and judging and, and being disparaging and things, that takes, and must take, a phenomenal strength of character to deal with that situation.
1: It, it was extraordinary. <laughs> but, but then I had never sought to hide my sexuality. I didn't want to be defined by it. I mean, in a sense, I'm rather proud actually of being a role model yes. for, for young gay people. So I, was in my, what, I was in my, what was I in 1987? I was 30, I don't know, two, three. Um, I mean, what I felt I, I, I was doing then in, with hindsight was giving confidence to other young gay men in whatever field or sector, not necessarily in politics, who just wanted to be themselves, openly enjoy their lives and their sexuality and not have to justify anything you know just get on with life (laughs) I mean straight people don't have to explain why they're straight I mean why do gay people have to sort of explain or justify why they're gay of course if you know if you know uh, some still have to fight for their rights and I'd always support them Uh, and there does remain some prejudice but we're a million miles away from where we were you know, in the seventies and eighties, you know, w- w- when I came out, and obviously I experienced homophobia in the in the, in the in the media, uh, you know, from the Sun and the Daily Mail, uh, um, and, and, and indeed, famously from Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. who, when I left the government first in nineteen ninety eight, delivered a really explicitly homophobic attack on me in his column in the telegraph you know he referred to gay people as tank top bum boys yes had me off uh, in bars and clubs and i I should be so lucky Uh, (laughs) anyway but when when matthew did this in 1998 you know it was 10 years after the news of the news of the world and actually, when he did it, I was sitting on my bed watching Newsnight, doing my uh, red box as minister uh, uh, then. And actually, when he said it, I didn't bat an eyelid. But within an hour, I had the Sun newspaper banging on my front door, demanding to know, you know, what was my response to Matthew Paris. Well, I didn't have a response. I just <laughs> didn't all that off as far well as I'm concerned. But then the rest of the media successfully, Push the story forwards by creating a completely artificial argument about the rights and wrongs of what Matthew had done, and then the BBC banned further discussion on air because they believed rightly that it was an invasion of my privacy. That in turn sparked another round of media debate, and and you know people in Number Ten were a bit agitated by it. I mean, Alastair Campbell was very animated. Uh, by it, he regarded the whole thing as a completely unwelcome, you know, diversion, uh, for which he rather blamed me, actually. But did he life.
0: say that to you? Did he say this is
1: your fault? No, but that was, it was pretty, I, know, I think he was getting a bit fed up with me anyway by that time. So, but, what,
0: what was the relationship between between you two? Because I suppose in some people's eyes, other people might say, well, well Lannister Campbell's the third man, you know, he was... Tony's right-hand guy for a while. There's an interesting dynamic between you two.
1: Yeah, certainly is. Um, (laughs) But are you friends now? Yes, we're friends. We're We're all friends now. We're we're all friends. Um, But he then got into a big thing about whether I should put out a clarifying statement about my sexuality. And I said, well, if you want me to do that, I will. But, I mean, believe me, it's been no secret for the last previous 20 years or so eventually this decision about whether you know i should put out a clarifying statement was referred up to the prime minister himself and he decided no that it would just push the story on uh, further and i was like a spectator as all this was going on around me i must say i hated it but i remembered and said to myself nothing to be ashamed of never show your fear just keep looking uh, forwards and that's how things stood until a few years a few weeks later the media had got over that well, barely got over that initial storm and controversy controversy uh, and then of course they were given another story um, uh, courtesy of gordon's press guy um, charlie Whelan, this time about a loan that i'd received from a fellow neighbor mp to buy my house in london and that finally brought me down uh, because the two episodes virtually happened together. They were completely intertwined, and I suspect that the resignation probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for the media storm spot by by, by Matthew on, uh, on on Newsnight and the ensuing controversy. But there we are. It's all in the mists of history now.
0: It is, but it's, it's such a... What was... A, there's so many fascinating things about new labor but the personal relationships at the heart of it made you know this is why people are still so obsessed with it is not just that it was a very brief and phenomenal period of success for the labor party given its relative um uh, unsuccess before and after um, but it is the, the, the relationship between the three of you and, and obviously the, the situations that inevitably three friends find themselves in when they're in senior positions in the middle of a government is that sometimes they're going to fall out and excruciatingly, they're going to have to sack each other at some point.
1: I know it's very intense, but the relationships are not as important as the as the strategy as the leadership. Um you know, and the policies, and, you know, Labour's now got to climb out of that deep trough all over again. I mean, uh, putting the party under new leadership is is, is, is is only the sort of hors d'oeuvre for what we've got <laughs> to go on and do from, from now on. You know, we've got to offer a really convincing vision of what a post-Brexit, post-COVID Britain looks like what it stands for and the policies needed to fulfill this vision you know uh, uh, and to create it make it strong enough and credible enough and convincing enough for enough people to really want to vote for it and I think Keir Starmer undoubtedly knows this he's got the he's got a handle on this challenge I think Um, and he's certainly leading Labour in the right direction the question for me Matt is will the Labour Party allow him mm. to do what's needed? I mean, will the will the Labour Party allow him to make the changes that he needs to? Not only putting the vision and the policies in place, but rebuilding the organisation and the electoral machinery that's been almost brought to dust by the Corbyn years uh, and, and, and his cronies. Now, as it happens, I think the overwhelming bulk of the party membership, apart obviously from the Corbyn diehards, but the overwhelming bulk of the party membership, I think they're willing to back here in what he thinks is necessary. And indeed, I think all the major unions are also on board, aside, of course, from Unite, you know, Unite the super union, as they like to call themselves as super only in terms of its size. Uh, but because of course now as an industrial union as a sort of real influencer or force it's a pale shadow of its uh, former self what it used to be Former
0: selves, yes the tng and amicus back in the day
1: No, they were the transport union the engineers and the electricians yeah i mean they they don't seem interested in representing their members they don't seem interested in interpreting the huge transformative changes that are taking place in the world of work and representing their members' interests to the very best of their ability. What they seem to be interested in is impeding Keir Starmer uh, and making sure that we don't have another Labour government uh, in in the future. I mean, it's just extraordinary that uh, that that a trade union, which has so much money, so much money, courtesy of its uh, large membership. You know, they haven't given a single penny to the Labour Party since Keir Starmer took over the leadership in April. Not a penny to the party to help advance, you know, uh, 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 the cause of a a Labour uh, government. I think it's extraordinary, actually. I mean, they give money, they spend money hand over fist to from, from the political funds of their own members to defend extreme hard left figures and anti-Labour digital platforms like Squawk Box or whatever it's called and Canary and, and the others, but not a single penny for the Labour Party. I mean, the truth is that the current leadership cell of Unite, and it is a very tightly drawn and organised cell, they've just become enmeshed in political factionalism. Mm completely unrepresentative of their own members uh, and the interests of those members. They've completely lost their way. No longer an effective trade union, just trying to be a leftist political faction to rival uh, and damage Labour. that's That's what they've become.
0: I remember you saying it must have been the 2009 Labour Party conference. If I can come back, we can come back. And you yes. were talking about yourself. And
1: the the, do you the remember, amazing. Do you, that, do you remember that speech in 2009 to the party conference?
0: Oh, I do. I was in the room, and it was the it was the best speech of the conference. It was by far the most entertaining uh, and um, well, motivating hope, of the speeches that happened were, that summer.
1: I hope you were on your feet, joining the standing ovation with the rest of them. <laughs>
0: I can't, I can't remember specifically, but I, I would have been, I'm sure. I'm sure I would have been. But but that comeback, when, you know, the thought that Peter Mandelson, who leaves twice under Tony Blair, is going to be resurrected and, and plonked back into the cabinet by, of all people, Gordon Brown. Did you see that coming at all?
1: No, I did not.
0: <laughs> it must have been such a surprise. You must have thought it was a prank call at first
1: look he did it in such a Gordonish sort of way I mean I was he he had been um he'd been getting me to see him in 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 the months before he did it in a very indirect way he got he got um, um the head at number 10 who became the cabinet secretary Jeremy Hayward who you know, the most senior civil servant in number 10, who I'd known for a long time and was close to, he got, he got Jeremy to sort of draw me in back towards, <laughs> um, you know, uh, number 10. And But so that I was, uh, I was seeing Gordon from time to time and talking about what was going on, But but the rest of the time I was flying around in the rest of the world being a trade commissioner. Mm. And I came back to London in what was it, towards the end of September 2008, I was actually going in to be briefed by Alistair Darling in the Treasury about the financial crisis Um, and the fact that we were going to have to um, bail out the banks and stop them taking the rest of the economy over a cliff. And Jeremy knew I was there, he knew I was coming, and Gordon asked me to go in and have lunch with him at number 10. I mean, I say lunch, I use the term euphemistically. It was a sort of sandwich of sorts and a yogurt and a <laughs> banana. Sounds like so a packed lunch. It was certainly a packed lunch in the, <laughs> in the small state dining room. Um, ne- never has such a banana been served up. I tell you, hitherto, <laughs> in the state, small state dining room, with number 10 dining room. Um, but he... Um, But he asked me and, look, I said, look, I'm going to have to think about it. You know, I'm doing things I'm really keen on doing and I want to see through to the end in Brussels. Um, uh, Let's think about it. And he said, well, actually, I I want to do this tomorrow. Oh, crikey. I said, do what tomorrow? (laughs) He said, well... Nobody knows, but I'm having a, a, a reshuffle of the cabinet tomorrow, and I would like you to be the star turn. I said tomorrow, <laughs> and he, he, yes, I said. Well, I'm not sure whether I'm whether I'm up to doing this. I'm not sure that my partner would be very happy me coming back into the goldfish. Of politics. He's rather keen for me to keep out of that. Um, I said, Can I do one thing? Can I can I can I call Tony and see what he thinks about it? He said, yes. <laughs> call Tony. I called Tony and he said, Well, I'm in my office, come over and see me. And I and I did, by the time I got to Tony's office, not very far away, he greeted me with this huge Tony-like grin spread across his face. He said i couldn't make this up he said it is so funny he said i've just had him just been taken off the phone to gordon who called me to say that under no circumstances was i to discourage you <laughs> <laughs> and, and that i was to tell you that you had to do it i said "Oh, well, wow. well, do i he said of course you do of course you have to do, go back if you're asked by the prime minister to go Rejoin the government in the middle of a global financial crisis. Of course, you've got to do it, and I did, and I did it enthusiastically and happily. And actually, those next two and a bit years were the happiest of my the happiest of my ministerial office. I mean, it was the. I love being in Northern Ireland. I love being Northern Ireland Secretary, um, implementing the Good Friday Agreement, which I did. Um, I'd love being at the Department of Trade and Industry because I produced a policy white paper called Building a Knowledge Driven Economy, which was way ahead of its time in 1998. But those final two years, final New Labour years, uh, uh, well, I love them. They were, they were, they were brilliant.
0: They, it was a remarkable very hard, time.
1: Very, very hard, I might say, but just I don't know, very satisfying.
0: That phone call, when Gordon Brown rings Tony Blair to tell him not to discourage you, I mean, that's like dad ringing mum to say,
1: <laughs> make sure he eats his greens. I know, well, they, they were a bit like that. But the fact that they could call each other and say that, you know, <laughs> thats the that's the funny thing. I mean, you know, despite the rupture, the fracture, whatever you want to call it, um, you know. But it, it was when, when we left uh on the day after the 2010 general election, Gordon uh, Gordon came back to the party headquarters to thank everyone for what they did. And he walked in through the door and he said, I want to thank you all so much, you know, for what you've done. And I want to thank in particular Peter, who's stood here. He really has been and will remain the rock of new labor. That was that was G Brown 2010 and honestly it's the nicest thing that anyone could ever say.
0: It's a great thing. What a great tribute as well from a you know from a prime minister. Still a friend,
1: but you know but then we leave office (laughs) and history starts repeating itself all over again i mean it just makes me wild at the lip about the labor party you know whenever it goes mad the country loses and sure enough we come out of government and uh, oh god you know (laughs) know, there they go there they all go again the labor party talking to itself dogged by people who think it's more important to control the party than to win elections, mm-hmm. who think that compromising with the electorate is a betrayal of socialism and then spend more time attacking what Labour has done in government because it wasn't perfect from their point of view, rather than attacking the much more inferior alternative. And that's what happened in 2010, uh, uh, trashing the record of the Labour government because for some, it was more important to attack new Labour than to get the Tories out of uh, power.
0: It was Uh, a fascinating campaign, 2010, and and you advised Gordon Brown throughout it. And something we haven't talked about yet is, is your really unique set of skills for dealing with a crisis, being calm in the eye of the storm, delivering the right advice. There's probably no better example, unless you can give me one, than when Gordon Brown is caught on a hot mic on Sky News talking about Gillian Duffy in the north of England and then the the, the drama that follows that. So talk us through it then. When do you find uh, out about this and how do you decide what to do?
1: I I was there, actually I was in a room, uh, in a meeting room at the party campaign headquarters because I was writing, putting the finishing touches to a speech I had to make at two o'clock to the assembled ranks, thousands of of business people at the annual conference of the Institute of Directors. And I was in the, uh, it was about midday, I think. And I was in this room and uh, Tom Price, who was the chief press officer, (laughs) he came in, he came over to me and he sort of knocked on the door and he looked at me. He was pale as a sheet. (laughs) Tom, Tom, what's, what's the matter? And he said, um, could you, could you, could you, could you, could could you, could, could," Matt Tom, I said, will you just tell me what has happened? He said, oh, could you come over here, please? (laughs) He led me to the bank of TV screens, um, in the, in the, in the central area of the campaign office, and on every single screen, (laughs) there was Gordon Brown with his uh, variously in a car with a microphone or, uh, by this time, um, I think almost by this time, he'd gone into a BBC studio to do um, Jeremy Vine show. And he was sitting there with his head in his hands. He didn't, he thought it was radio. He didn't realize it was being streamed live by TV um you know i was very calm they wanted to they were out on the road up there in rochdale they wanted to, gordon thought and people around him thought they should hold an immediate press conference to Mac say Radio what Media. to say what i said <laughs> you know i said please don't do that please don't <laughs> call a press conference because it will just go on and on and on i said it would be a much better idea if he just quietly steps aside goes off and sees uh, what was her name? Gillian, Gillian Duffy. Duffy. Gillian Duffy just knocks on the door, goes to her in her house. Um, I think Sue Nye, who was with him actually, still. Um, I think was it her idea or somebody's idea that she should, and I said, look, just do it. Go to Gillian Duffy, knock on the door. We'll arrange it. We'll say you're coming. Just go inside and just have a quiet chat and make it up with her. Please don't do a big press conference. So we did that and he came out and he stood on the doorstep and said he made it up and and we got over it. I, I then had to go immediately to do this speech at the Royal Albert Hall. I was doorstep by what seemed like hundreds of cameras. And I just said very calmly in a nice sort of way, you know, stuff happens in a campaign. Sometimes people say things uh, which they feel at that moment, but probably not long after, and Gordon feels very sorry uh, uh, for, for what he said. He's apologised to Gillian Duffy, and that's an end of it.
0: That takes a particular type of poise and personality that so few people in politics or in senior positions in life at all seem to possess. When crises hit, people flap and they panic and they make bad decisions why do you think you were always able to stay so calm and, and obviously that answer just takes the sting out of it it is a really good answer why do you think you possess those characteristics when yeah. so few
1: yeah. other people in politics seem to i don't know because it's partly it's partly to do with having no fear matt you know you got to be you got to maintain your stiff upper lip maintain your poise uh i mean you just have no fear. Of what? Of anything? <laughs> <laughs> you must get something.
0: What, what does make what does um uh, make you know what scared? scare. You
1: know what I've been through my political life? I can tell you I have shed every last, last ounce of fear that I may have had in my body when I started. Um, I think it's time for you to say goodbye to me, isn't it? Well...
0: <laughs> far from Peter Mandelson to still be controlling interviews <laughs> in, in December no, no,
1: I, mean, I do have a couple of dogs too. who would quite like to, you know, see a bit of me. Yes, well,
0: I don't want to impinge on their animal rights. I was just going to... Um, I, 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 I do realise like I've kept tea, you actually. They quite like the tea. I want to... Well, talking of tea, will they
1: be getting mushy peas or guacamole? Oh, ha, ha. <laughs> It's taken you over an hour. I mean, you know, you've re- I, I, I overestimated you. I thought you'd be able to get that in in the first five minutes. Here we are an hour and 15 later and you've only been able to just squeeze it in. <laughs> just in the nick of time. Happy Christmas, <laughs> Happy Christmas Matt.
0: But just uh, th- that story, what, what was the truth behind it? Was it some American? <laughs> there, was no, or...
1: there was no truth in it at all um i I was (laughs) there's no truth in it at all it was just i think it was a story about an. there was an american intern i think who when was the nosley by-election was it 1986 or so i can't remember anyway apparently i'm sure it's apocryphal but he went in and said uh for cotton chips i'll have Pointing at the mushy peas, he said, "I'll have some of your guacamole as well." I think he was some American intern from California. Anyway, it was Neil Kinnock who made this famous. He attributed it to me because when um, after I'd been selected uh, in Hartley and I and I stood down as campaign and communications director, um, uh, they had he gave a little party for me uh, for all the lobby and all the media and everything and. Uh, presented me with that day's daily mirror um, uh, which wrapped up a wonderful cotton chip <laughs> and he said I'll I've, I've put in your mushy peas as well <laughs> and everyone roared with laughter and from that moment on thank you Neil um, everyone assumed that it was I who walked into the fish and chip shop in Hartlepool and Asked for some nice guacamole to go with the cotton chips. <laughs> Not true, great story. Um, and a nice story to end on, I'd say.
0: It is indeed. Peter, thank you very much. Merry Christmas.
1: Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to everyone listening to this. Let's hope, let's hope that 2021 is sort of nicer, calmer and easier. Than the year we've just gone through.
0: Indeed. Thank you. Well, Peter, very uh, politely <laughs> um, and rightfully uh, at the end there, um, making it quite clear that I had indeed kept him, as I do many of my guests, keep them long beyond the hour. That I need to stop telling people that I need an hour but If I tell people I need an hour and a half, and that just sounds like too long. But I was just completely lost in that. I could have just listened to him forever. Because he is so rare in politics. And it is. It makes that new Labour era. I mean, it's almost like looking back over the United treble winning season or or Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest. But these are kind of all the formation of the Beatles. You know, when you get a a, a nucleus of people that all have unique talents that complement each other and when they are the most talented people in that particular field, that will just remain endlessly fascinating anyway. Even with what's happened what's happened to the Labour Party since makes it even more fascinating because it's clearly very hard for the Labour Party to create the environment for people like that to to take over and to flourish the fact that it's a rare event but it is just so remarkable uh the the people involved in it and their relationships with each other Uh, and what they were able to do for the Labour Party is just magnificent and I was just I could have I could've listened to Peter Mandelson for not just a few hours. I could have just happily sat there for weeks, months, just listening to his account of what it was like to live that life at that time, why decisions were taken, how they're taken. But of course, what makes him so fascinating is is his personality, is his ability to think these things through at a time when it's when all around you um like the kipling poem when all around you keep your head when all around you are losing theirs and it really felt like that's what he brought as well as everything else but that was his kind of unique contribution really to, to new labor to the labor party at that time as well as all the other insights that he brought what was that was that character that calmness that ability to think clearly And he touches on it. It's as a result of having no fear, as a result of the experiences that life had given him. I think also you're kind of born with that to an extent, but perhaps life... Uh, sharpen that that acumen and that antenna so there you go what a christmas treat for you um one of the greatest guests in the history of the show i really hope people will come back particularly when we return to live shows hopefully at some point next year when we can start doing them again at the other palace um i can't think of anyone better suited to being interviewed uh, uh on this show in front of an audience but for now what a sensational interview um you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com. You can, of course, leave a review on iTunes. Thank you to all the, of those of you that have done it, um, or, in, or whatever platform you listen to this podcast. Uh, and I hope you're enjoying uh, the festive period. I always am a little too early in, in wishing people a Merry Christmas, perhaps, but now it's definitely Christmas, isn't it? So, and uh, I don't know this year is going to be probably the worst Christmas that many people ever. <laughs> shouldn't have perhaps framed it like that um but it is going to be difficult for people so i just hope uh wherever you spend it and in whatever circumstances you're in that uh, that you have a good christmas um that you're able to get through it i suppose the whole world is going through it which in a bizarre way helps because you think there's nothing that we're really missing out on apart from human contact which of course is the most important thing um But yes, I'm now making it sound far bleaker than I expected to. What I meant was, I just hope that you have a good Christmas, um, particularly this year. Um, So there we go. Um, Yes, all the best. I'm hoping to be back with another episode next week. Um, So there we are. I shall leave it there. (laughs) Ta-ra.